Hello, and thank you for joining us. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from ASI Incorporated and Merkin Company Incorporated. Our experts will discuss immune checkpoint inhibitors for advanced endometrial cancer, including therapeutic rationale and their safety and efficacy as single agents and in combination therapies. This is part two of our two-part series. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the show notes. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Robert Coleman, Chief Scientific Officer with U.S. Oncology Research and Co-Director of GOG Partners. Dr. Coleman is also President-Elect of the International Gynecologic Cancer Society. And Dr. Bradley Monk, Professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and the Creighton University School of Medicine in Phoenix, Arizona, and Medical Director of the U.S. Oncology Research Network's Gynecologic Program. Dr. Monk, along with Dr. Coleman, is also co-director of GOG Partners, and Dr. Monk is a member of the Board of Directors of the GOG Foundation. Dr. Coleman will lead our discussion. Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. We're discussing um, advanced endometrial cancer and the role of immunotherapy. And today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about patient selection, uh, toxicities, toxicity management, um, and how these uh, new therapies are entering into our, our clinical domain uh, with increasing frequency. And to help me uh, sort this out and uh, provide clarity to it, I'm so proud to have my good friend, uh, and uh, co-partner on uh, our GOG Partners effort, uh, Dr. Bradley Monk, who uh, come, joins us from Arizona today. Uh, Dr. Monk is a uh, professor at Creighton University, and uh, for many of you may recognize his name as he's been involved in the drug development programs over many years uh, in, with several novel agents, uh, not excluding uh, immunotherapy. So welcome, Brad. Nice to have you again. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk about uh, sort of who the right patient is for pembrolizumab and, and how to mitigate the adverse reactions. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll, we're really banking on, on your experience uh, with these drugs. So let's, um, you know, we, in, the, in the previous episode of, of this podcast, we talked a lot about how efficacious these agents are. And I think it's anybody who would listen to that will definitely appreciate the excitement we have for bringing these into, into the clinic. But I, I think it's probably safe to assume that we just can't blanket everybody with these uh, agents. And I think we do need to provide some patient selection. We already do that sort of activity when we're thinking about chemotherapy. I think you actually in the last session, you mentioned that patients who have pelvic radiation, you make some dosing modifications on the chemotherapy. So we're obviously already taking you know, patient characteristics into account when we start to decide if we're going to do this. Um, but tell us a little bit about immunotherapy. We have this drug available for patients who have recurrent disease. We talked about how they're entering into the frontline space and how now even moving into in combination with other modalities in the adjuvant setting. Um, how, do we, how do we pick the patients? Yeah, thank you. And, and I think it, it's all about the right patient and the right treatment. 
So mm-hmm. in the pembrolizumab and vatinib opportunity, obviously the molecular signature is paramount, that if the patient is MSI high, they should get pembrolizumab alone. But if they're not MSI high or mismatch repair proficient, then they would qualify. And that right patient would be uh, obviously number one performance status. A patient yeah. who is too infirm uh, really is not a good, uh, a good opportunity. And, and then I kind of go through what the expected adverse reactions might be and right. see if they are, are possible here. So for example, uh, you know, this has a checkpoint inhibitor. So if she has an autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis or something, I realize that there's a whole literature about that, but that would be sort of a a relative contraindication. Uh, And then lenvatinib is an oral medication. So if you can't take oral medication because they have a bowel obstruction, uh, then that's not a good idea. And then (laughs) for sure. (laughs) But but, I mean, it's literally that simple. And and so so you got to have a molecular signature, performance status, GI, and then, you know, hypertension can be an issue. So if she has uncontrolled hypertension, there are other sort of nuances, but those would sort of be the high-level uh, patient profile. The reality is that most patients in second-line endometrial cancer qualify. Most patients right. have that molecular signature. Most patients are feeling pretty good, and most patients have an intact GI uh, and no really contraindication to the combination. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into the details of, those, uh, of that patient selection and toxicities management, I think this is this one space. These patients tend to be a little older. They tend to have a mm-hmm. more comorbidities. I know you probably had the same experience, but I've had some clinical trials that have really been uh, compromised by including infirm patients in that patient eligibility. And I think, I think it's really, yeah, I think this is one of those places where you have to really be true to yourself about how infirm the patient really is, because right. you really hate to, you know, put them in a much worse space by accentuating toxicities. Um, but yeah, I too am very concerned about you know making sure I understand the nature of their uh, potential autoimmune background, and there's a lot of it. You know, patients that do have that many times with at low degrees um, in terms of its severity. But those are something we definitely have to ask patients about. So, you know, last time we talked a little bit about the um, genomic signatures, and you mentioned it already. We have MSI, the MMR deficient um, state, and patients that are wild type. Thinking about this from, in more uh, globally, are those patient cohorts, do they have differential expectation for toxicity? Do you think the MSI patients, for instance, are more likely to have toxicity than the MS-stable ones? Uh, relative to the checkpoint inhibitor, no. Yeah. Um, but certainly, if they're not MSI high, they get a second medication, Lenvatinib. Yeah, there you go. Which brings a whole sort of uh, right. uh, different, different situation. Right. That's, that's right. I think, you know, you know, as, as these single agent um, immune checkpoints have gotten more prolifically used across the oncology, I think many people are, are experienced with at least knowing what that menu of toxicities are for monotherapy. But maybe we could just kind of briefly go through for those maybe that are new and, uh, or maybe don't have a lot of experience with immune checkpoint inhibitors. You know, what, what kind of things do you keep an eye out for? You see the patient in the office and you're going to tell your nurse, you know, what orders to get as getting them ready for treatment. What, what kind of things do you do? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I don't think I'm going to use the word toxicity during this podcast because okay. the word to- the word toxicity is toxic. And so I don't like <laughs> I don't I, I adverse don't, events. I, okay. Adverse yeah. adverse reactions. Adverse adverse reactions. Events. There you go. So so I, I what happens is that people say, "Oh, Brad, you know, if if the if the if the grade three four adverse reactions are seventy percent, then this is an intolerable regimen." And I'm going to start them at a lower dose or I'm not going to use it. And I, right. I pivot and I say, you mean it's just like carboplatin paclitaxel? 
You, you mean it's, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's just like a PARP inhibitor? So, yeah. so I, I think we really need to know what we're talking about. And, you know, any grade ad, treatment-related adverse reactions, about 95%, and grade three or four, 75. Here's the number one key. And this, this is relative to PARP inhibitors, is that these are oral medications, at least lenvatinib and PARP inhibitors. And when you stop them, the adverse reaction goes away. Mm-hmm. But right. when, you get a, when you get a walloping dose of paclitaxel, you got to suffer through it for a cycle. Right. Okay. And, yep. and so that's, that, that's the first number one point. Number two is, is this, it's really, you just have to break down the components. So you break down the components to IO, uh, pembrolizumab. I think all of our listeners have used pembrolizumab or another checkpoint inhibitor before, and you know how to monitor and evaluate immune-related adverse reactions. So that, that doesn't create any really concern. I get it. They're rare. It can be serious and life-threatening, number right. one. No, number two, all of us use oral antiolytics, uh, anti-cancer mm-hmm. therapies. Right. So, so the, the, the oral-related, the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, the fatigue, whether you guys know how to do that. Okay? Mm-hmm. So IO, you know how to do it. Uh, oral, you know how to do it. And then the third is VEGF. And you know how to check the protein, and you know how to check the blood pressure, and you know uh, 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 all of that. Sort of, sort of complicated factors because all of you have used anti-VEGF therapy in your practice. The challenge is, is that unlike holding a single ball, now there's three, right? There, there's, right. there's, there's, there's IO, yep. oral, and VEGF, and you have to juggle. And so, right. so that takes some skill, but you can do it. And when you do that, you always have the option to, in the oral agent, stop, recover, dose reduce. And right. most patients need that. But the full-dose recipe yeah. is tolerable when you try to mitigate sort of the, 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 the GI toxicities, check the blood pressures at home, and if necessary, stop, recover, and dose reduce. Right. I think that's good advice. When I start um, patients on these therapies, you know, I, I typically will get blood work that would compass those things that you mentioned. So CBC, uh, you know, metabolic profile, we check the thyroid, get thyroxin, we check their cortisol. Uh, we've seen some pretty impressive adrenal insufficiencies. I'm sure you have as well. And again, these are these are side effects that when they do happen, they're not like it's not like a, a anemia where you can say, "Oh, you're definitely this." You right? These people mm-hmm. come in with unique symptoms. Um, and they may be related to the cancer. They may be related to the drugs. They may be a combination of the both. I think what we try to do is to sort out as you mentioned, you know, what's, what's coming from what and what are modifiable and what are not. And obviously tumor burden is also one of those features that we hope will resolve, you know, or get smaller with treatment, but sometimes it's very difficult to get through that. I think there's um, been a couple of very nice uh, publications on how to manage uh, toxicity. Uh, uh, JCO published a 60-page document, which uh, you can download, uh, that goes through every single immune toxicity and strategy. I think it's important that people stay up to date on these management strategies. But what are those cases that you've seen that, you know, you wouldn't restart, uh, let's say, the immune checkpoint inhibitor? Yeah, I mean, in, in short, it's grade three, but there are some right. grade threes, such as thyroid, that you can restart. Uh, there are some grade three uh, glucose intolerance that you can restart. Right. So you, you can't just say all grade threes. Um, 
My point that, oh, well, if you stop the oral medication, it gets better. Well, that doesn't happen with the thyroid as an example. Right. But it, the challenge here is the combination. So what that very nice JCO document doesn't sort out is the, is the combination. So for example, right. you know, every cough is not coronavirus. And is, and exactly. And is, and That's why I went on and mute. And so people thought I would add Corona over here. And, and, is, and is and is not seasonal allergies and is not right. immune-related pneumonitis. So so you have to realize you know how that's evaluated. It's evaluated with CAT scan and a very low threshold to a pulmonary consult. So that's one example. Right. And, and every diarrhea. See the challenge here is that as an example, diarrhea could either be colitis, right, or it could be a GI. Uh, disturbance from the oral medication. Sure. So, so again, that's what the that's what the ASCO publication doesn't sort out. But if you have diarrhea that's more than grade one, then stop the lenvatinib. Right. And and yeah. and it sh- it should resolve rather quickly. And then you have your diagnosis. And if it's serious, my style is you probably should start some glucocorticoids because the patients that really get sick and potentially die are ones where you spend a lot of time. Trying yeah, to figure you know, out what it is. Out. It's, right, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the delay yeah. uh, that really creates the complication. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. No, I think we learned that when we were first starting, you know, getting into the space and trying to spend a lot of time trying to sort it out. Um, you know, there were several situations that arose when there was a toxicity on a Friday and then said, oh, well, let's check mm-hmm. it on Monday. And then Monday they're, you know, in the, in the ER. Uh, and, and so I think uh, early and, um, attentive uh, management of these adverse events uh, is going to be really important. We have to educate our, our advanced practice providers though, right? Because they get all of these calls about diarrhea and, and, or nausea or or shortness of breath or whatever. And they need to realize that if there's a call for diarrhea on this medication, then, then that's a big deal. It's not, Oh, take some Lamotil and call me tomorrow. Right. Uh, and, and, and same with blood pressure. If the blood pressure is elevated, obviously you treat the blood pressure, but you stop the lumbatinib. Exactly. So, so these sorts of nuances of treating diarrhea and hypertension differently. See, when you have a bevacizumab-related hypertension, there's no bevacizumab to stop because right. it was given a week ago. Right, and, and it's and, an but, but, antibody, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and it's antibody's going to hang out there. So, so right. these are sort of the nuances of this combination. Uh, early detection... Uh, understanding how to evaluate the specific adverse reaction and how and when to get your specialist involved and how and when to uh, instigate immunosuppressive therapy. Basically, yeah. pred, you know, methylprednisolone or, or, or prednisone. Some equivalent, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's a good point. I, one, th- one thing I want to just highlight too, because your emphasis on this is really important, and I think it's important for people that are new to prescribing, particularly the, the lenvatinib and pembrolizumab combination. And that's that these grade one, two events are very are fairly frequent. Uh, yes. So for instance, the diarrhea we saw in more than half the patients, but the actual grade three, four rates are about, you know, one-tenth of that, six, seven percent, right? right? Mm-hmm. So, so this is something you're going to deal with, but you're not, you know, you don't want to lose the fact that you, you don't want to miss those six percent because they're really, really bad. But you're going to be be prepared that you're going to be hearing a lot from the patients about these side effects. The other uh, one that I always like to to point out is this um, fatigue or asthenia, which could represent, you know, all all the things you just mentioned, but also could be, you know, adrenal insufficiency. And so it's, it's one of those things you just have to be, you have to have it on your mind. 
-hmm. just as you mentioned, start with the knowledge that this is going to happen. Fortunately, most of the time, with the with the guidance that you you nicely um, outlined for them, these will will get better, and the patients can stay on treatment. Yeah, we actually have a clinical pathway for fatigue. The number one cause of fatigue here in the desert is dehydration, mm-hmm. right? In an elderly patient, it can be malnutrition, sleep deprivation, and depression. Uh, And then obviously hypothyroidism in addition to some of the other uh, endocrinopathies. So certainly anemia. So that's one of the most complicated diagnoses. There is no fatigue specialist. See, if I have a lung problem, I call up my lung specialist. (laughs) Right, exactly. If I I have a fatigue problem, (laughs) it's my problem. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly. Before we close out this session, I think um, it might be worthwhile to maybe talk a little bit about those, the ones that are super tricky. You touched on this, but the three that I, I think that most people recognize are pneumonitis, liver dysfunction, and then the GI. We talked a lot about GI, and certainly, you know, that's one of those things where if we're not seeing improvement, it very rapidly started start inducing, you know, steroid steroid coverage. This this can actually can expand in, into uh, uh, mycophenolate and other types of uh, immunosuppressive agents to get them over the over the hump on that. But what about like liver dysfunction? And really tricky is pneumonia, right? Pneumonitis, pneumonia, and how to sort those out. And those can be tough. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the hepati- hepatotoxicity and hepatitis. Yeah. So I, I actually find that pretty easy um, mm. because, you know, I check for a viral problem, which they don't have. And if it's yeah. severe, I give them steroids. So the differential right. diagnosis is really short. Right. Uh, and the intervention is very clear. In the lungs, it could be anything. Right. You know, it, it could be fluid overload. It could be infectious. It could be immune-related. Uh, could yeah. be aspiration. Could be a PE. Right, right. Short. Right. This is a, a high-risk patient population for pulmonary embolus. So, yep. so I really think you kind of have to decide: is this something that I need to pay attention with? And I can tell you, if it's important enough for her to interrupt her day to call you, yeah, it's probably on. important, right? Right. Right. And you can't really just oh put in authorization for a CAT scan because that'll get done next week. Right. So, so it, at least in Phoenix, most of our big ERs have CAT scans right in the ER. Right, And I, I realize in the coronavirus pandemic, it's complicated, but you can go to the ER and you can have a pulse ox and you can have a, a CT scan. And if you have pneumonitis, the CT scan should be abnormal. Right. And so I, I think that that's, that that's what happens is that when people say, well, you know, let's do chest x-ray. Yeah, right. And, that, and, and that's just not going to really that's be not, It's not going to fly. Right, mm-hmm. right. That's great. Well, that's um, very helpful. I think um, we've provided a kind of a nice roadmap of patients that are, uh, we think that most of these patients, uh, there are some important things to check if we're going to use these therapies. Um, having knowledge of what to expect in the toxicities for the two agents is going to be important into picking patients for, for therapy. Um, but we think that most patients could be good candidates for these therapies. Uh, we know they're efficacious, but they have adverse events that we need to be mindful of. So education of, the, of all of the treatment personnel, including the uh, advanced uh, care practitioners uh, and the patient is going to go the longest way to make sure that we can institute these in a safe manner. And, um, and fortunately, because these are available now, our experience will grow. And as we've seen in multiple other uh, new therapies that have entered into the clinical domain, we get much better at it. We get much, much better and treatment discontinuations become far fewer 
and patients then have the greatest opportunity to benefit over the long haul. Did I sum that up for right, Brad? Anything else you might want to ask? Yeah, I, I, what we did in our in our office is we merged our order sets for anti-VEGF therapy and checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah, and and yeah. so by merging those, and so what do I mean? So I basically do all the labs that you do for for IO pembrolizumab, right? And then specifically dip the urine, right? Be- right. Every time you see her, because she's on an anti-VEGF, anti-VEGF, and, mm-hmm. and and have her check her blood pressure at home. Right. Every day with clear instructions. Parameters, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So, so what we do basically is that if your blood pressure is over 140 systolic, don't take your lindatinib and call me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty clear, right? That's pretty damn straightforward, and, 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 yeah. And, and some of my partners even say 130. Because unlike, unlike bevacizumab where the, uh, uh, or other intravenous anti-VEGFs, there's more than Bev, but where the, the hypertension creeps up on you, Right. Absolutely. Well, once again, thank you so much, Brad. I think uh, this has been a great discussion and um, I hope this has been informative to our listeners. Um, Please uh, look for the uh, efficacy uh, discussion that we've also uh, completed. I think you'll find this series um, pretty informative as to kind of the state of the art of where we are with immunotherapy and endometrial cancer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial2 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. And if you missed part one of this series or would like to listen again, go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial1, where Drs. Monk and Coleman discuss the efficacy of immune checkpoint inhibitors. 